But today we're kicking off a brand new series uh, called The Struggle is Real. Uh, and uh, it is a uh, series all around mental health. And uh, this series I'm, I'm very passionate about. Uh, many of you know uh, this if you've been around Catalyst. Before coming into church world and being a pastor, um, I was actually, my, my, a lot of my training was in psychology. I was a psychologist. I worked with uh, 18 and under was my focus. And, uh, but it is a passion of mine, mental health. And the intersection of mental health with scripture and theology is a very big passion of mine. And uh, here's what we know. Even just pre-pandemic, uh, even just, if you look at anxiety disorders alone, uh, about one out of five Americans uh, pre-pandemic uh, would experience a clinical level, meaning clinical in terms of uh, a, a diagnosed disorder of anxiety pre-pandemic. Um, not only that, but then you look at the pandemic, we've all know this, uh, uh, there's, even some have come out and said there's a mental health uh, epidemic that we're, uh, that we're experiencing right now because anxiety levels are up and uh, substance abuse levels are up. And, um, and a lot of that's been exasperated by people's social isolation. And, and so we really wanted to kind of dive into this series. And we'll be here for five to six weeks. Um, and I would encourage you to come for each of those. I truly believe it's going to help as we look to God's word. And there are actually people in God's word who had emotional struggles and glean some principles on how we can live lives uh, that are mentally healthy and emotionally healthy. And let me say this off the bat, um, and, and I want you to hear this because this is important, because sometimes we can go into even church settings, and if we have emotional struggles uh, or mental uh, health issues, we can sometimes feel, uh, even sometimes unintentionally, maybe shame about that or embarrassed about that. And let me just say this off the bat, it is okay to not be okay. Like, it's okay to struggle. Like, if you have made it through the past two years, you probably had some struggles. Can I free some people up? Uh, the past two years alone, even if you are a mentally resilient person, they've, they've, it, it's put some pressure on us. Uh, so I want you to feel relief there. Let me also say this. This, met, this series um, is, is uh, I'll just say it. Um, we are fans of counseling and therapy here at Catalyst Church. Can I get an Amen. But now I was one, so I know I'm biased, but I think everybody should have one. You have a primary care physician, you need a primary mental care physician. Uh, somebody who's just checking you out, somebody who's clinically trained, somebody who can help you to navigate life. Because have anybody else realized this? Life is hard, anybody? Work is hard, graduate school's hard, raising kids is hard, paying bills is hard, especially in a pandemic, it's hard. Come on, somebody. Like, so. And listen, if you are a clinician of any sort, we bless you. We thank God for you. Uh, we also know your workload has been heavy over this pandemic. Uh, but we thank God. I have a counselor I regularly talk to, um, and a lot of it's just preventative. Like, I'm like, hey, like, ask me questions. Let's dig around. Let's process. Because life happens, uh, and it's helpful. Now, I want to say that because by no means is this series going to negate any therapy, even any psychotropic medication you're on. By no means. There are times you need medication. Uh, again, there's no shame in that. No one would ever feel shame over taking blood pressure medication, so you should never feel shame over taking anti-anxiety medication. You should never feel shame about taking antidepressants. Um, and just to free people up. Is that okay? I know we just kind of had this conversation right before we started, but I want to dive into today. And I truly believe uh, it's going to help us. We look over the next five weeks at different um, 
angles of the mental health conversation. But before we, we jump in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We pray that as we open up your word, uh, you would speak to us today. Uh, Father, we thank you for it. We posture our hearts and minds to receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look today at a topic that maybe some of you may be less uh, aware of. It became very popular last year over the course of the pandemic. And it's a topic, uh, a mental health, it's a term, it's a state of emotional, emotional state called languishing. Languishing. Uh, and here's, uh, it actually was, was coined by a man named Corey Keyes, Dr. Corey Keyes, a sociologist, before the pandemic. And he described languishing as, um, as this. It is a sense, uh, it's apathy, a sense of restlessness or feeling unsettled, and an overall lack of interest in life or the things that typically bring you joy. That it's this general like lack of motivation. I've had, I've had many conversations with people over the course of these two years in the pandemic where there have been times where I've just lost some motivation spiritually. I've lost some motivation for my work life. I've lost some interest in things that used to bring me joy. That is what uh, mental health experts call languishing. Uh, some call it the forgotten middle child of mental health. <laughs> Because there's this, there's this continuum in mental health where there's the, you know, severe depression and then there's mental flourishing. And languishing is really the antithesis of, of flourishing. That you may not be clinically depressed, but you may not be flourishing. You, you may know that there's more that God has for you. You may know that, that I can actually be in a, a more healthier place mentally that I'm current am. Adam Grant wrote an article for the New York Times in 2021. He also did a TED Talk on this. Um, that really kind of made it more kind of pop culture uh, awareness of it because he, he described it at the beginning of the pandemic when there was, you know, cases rose and of course we had no vaccines or had, didn't know much about it and there was, everything was just kind of, we didn't know what to expect. But culturally, we experienced like kind of corporate anguish. And then what happens is over the course of the pandemic, anguishing then turns into languishing. That it's just kind of kept going. And even though we know more now, like mentally, that, that it's, kind of, it's kind of had a wear and tear on our souls. And uh, I want to talk today as we describe this idea of, of languishing. And maybe some of you are there today. You would say, yeah, I'm, I've, I've struggled with motivation. I've been, I've been kind of feeling a little bit apathetic. Or, or maybe you would just even say, I don't feel like I'm mentally flourishing. I want to encourage you to lean in. I do believe today has some practical application for all of us. And there's a person in the scriptures that, again, this, this, this phrase languishing is not used in the Bible. However, there's a woman in scriptures that really, um, again, based on the clinical definition of it, uh, is, is languishing. And it's Naomi in the book of Ruth. Naomi was the mother-in-law of Ruth, and, and Ruth is kind of the main character. Uh, Ruth is a four-chapter book in the Old Testament. It's really a narrative of, uh, of Ruth's life, and, and Naomi is a, a key person mentioned in that scripture. And to give context, Naomi uh, was living in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Her husband, Elimelech, uh, there was a famine in the land, so there was kind of an economic downturn uh, to have more modern context. And they then move to Moab. Now, now, moving to Moab is not like moving from Bethesda to Silver Spring or Bethesda to Virginia. It's like, it's like you are moving to the land that opposes us, the land that hates us. Like There was tension between Moab and the land of Judah. 
So they moved to this foreign land. It was supposed to be a short stay. Like, like Naomi thought, okay, we're going to get an Airbnb, you know, a few weeks. And then Elimelech's like, we're buying land. Come on, somebody. Uh, so 10 years they're there. Uh, she did not intend to be there that long, but they were there for 10 years. Over the course of those 10 years, they, have, they, have, well, they had two sons with them, but Elimelech dies. Her two sons marry Moabite women. And again, that was looked down upon if you were uh, from Bethlehem to, have, to marry a Moabite. So then her two sons die. So now she's left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And again, that, that's not something to be proud of in that culture at that time. Um, that's where we pick up. In verse 6 of Ruth 1, it says this, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant to each of you you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, wept a Loud said to her, We will go back to you, you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come home with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter. It's an important word there, bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi, in fact, later in chapter 1, she says, no, no longer call me Naomi. Why is it important? Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant one. No longer call me pleasant. No longer call me joyful. She says, call me Mara. Mara in the Hebrew means bitter. She says, God's hands turned against me. In fact, in one part of chapter 1, she says, the Lord has emptied me. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe you felt like life just kind of turned against you. Maybe some situations at work, just you felt like, God, why? Have you ever been there? And this is where Naomi was, where you felt like, God, where are you in this? Like, God, I thought you were in this, but, but where are you? I feel like you've, you've left me. You've, you've emptied me. God, where's your hand? Where's your blessing? Where's your presence? That's where she was. And that's where we pick up. And I want to share with you throughout this, this book um, really three things that Naomi does, even, even reluctantly. But she does that really lead her, we're going to see the end of chapter 4 to kind of give you a preview. She goes from languishing to flourishing. And we're going to see this at the very end of chapter 4, the very end of the book. But there's three things that she did. And here's the first one, and this is, this is kind of worded for us to apply to our lives, is that we have to renew our lives, which starts with our mind, but renew our lives with the good news, meaning the gospel, meaning the word of God, meaning the truth above everything else. Here's what happens is Naomi in chapter 1, she hears the famine's over. That's good news. Now, here's why it's important to note this, because Naomi had, remember I mentioned two Moabite daughters-in-law, not to mention 10 years ago she deserted her people. So in the back of her mind, she could have thought to herself, I may not be well-received if I go home. I, 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 I may be rejected if I go back to Bethlehem. It may be more comfortable for me. It may be safer for me to stay in Moab. Just a side note, sometimes what is most comfortable is not what's best for you. 
And, and here's, but she makes a decision. I'm going to think about, I'm going to set my mind on the good news that the famine is over. And here's a common struggle all of us have because we live in this world which is fallen. And that's this, is that we have to make the decision, are we going to think, of, of, think on things that are, to be a little bit general here, but the bad news or things that discourage hope the things that create anxiety, the things that rob us of our peace, the things that rob us of our joy, are we going to think upon those things that instill in us hope, that give us peace, that bring to us joy? Now, listen, bad news or, or, or thoughts that are destructive, and just so you know, the, the Apostle Paul, all throughout his epistles, were very clear about there's a, the importance of our thoughts. He says, set your mind on things above. Take every thought captive. Renew your mind. You're like, Apostle Paul, were you Dr. Paul, clinical psychotherapist? Come on. But he was very big. There is a battle going on in your mind. And listen, there are a lot of things that are psychological and social and emotional. But let me just say this. I think I've been clear about that. There are, but listen, do not undervalue the fact that a lot of things are spiritual. The enemy himself is called the prince of the power of the air. Can I tell you, you know that he is working in this. It was in- intriguing. And again, please let me just preface it with this. What I'm about to say, I am not bashing news organizations or those who work in media at all. I'm just stating some research. Um, they did a study back from Dartmouth College and Brown University did a study over the pandemic. They examined pandemic-related news stories, and they looked at transcripts from U.S., U.K., India, Canada, Australia. They used this algorithm to look for keywords that were either negative or positive. Here's what they found. 91% of news stories over the pandemic was negative. The American Psychological Association in 2020, they came out and said this. The APA said news consumption has a downside. More than half of Americans say their news consumption leads to anxiety, fatigue, and sleep loss. Yet, one out of ten of us check the news every hour. Yet, 20% of Americans report that they're constantly monitoring their social media feeds. In fact, the Computers and Human Behavior Journal back in 2014 even found that as little as 20 minutes of social media usage a day has a negative effect on your mood. Now, I know you all know this because you've all, anybody else, you've come away from scrolling the news or social media and you're just angry. Come on, somebody. You just felt more anxious. Anybody? I've been there. I've read the news and I'm like, now I'm more fearful Again, please hear this. I'm not bashing the news, but let me say it this way. Let me be very clear. Physically speaking, if I were to consume junk food that were bad for my health, I would not expect to be physically healthy. Then we should not expect to be mentally healthy. We consume negativity all day long. Guard your heart above all else, the Bible says. So here's what that means. Listen, I'm not saying some of you have to consume news for your work. But I'm saying this. Even the APA came out and said this. Get no, to be mentally healthy, the American Psychological Association, you should consume no more than 30 minutes of social media and news combined. Which the last study I heard, the average person's on social media over two hours. And we wonder why anxiety is the common emotion of our day. Now listen, I'm not saying and minimizing if you have a clinical disorder. But I'm saying, church, we have to wake up. And yes, there's facts we have to face. 
but be mindful of how it's affecting. Be, just be mindful of your mental diet because it's affecting your mental health. What you consume, the media can, you're consumed, nothing is neutral. It's either feeding anxiety or feeding peace. It's feeding depression or feeling joy, feeding joy. And we've seen it, haven't we? we? We've seen it across the pandemic. And again, please feel no condemnation. My hope is to open our eyes to the truth. Here's the apostle Paul says. Let me give context. Paul writes this from jail to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. So not perfect conditions. I would even say perhaps even worse than a global pandemic. And here's what he writes. <laughs> He says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. They write back, Paul, you crazy, right? Like we're being killed for our faith. And he says, listen, the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and dark places. And what's one way we win this war? We control our thoughts. We think on pure, lovely, noble, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy things. In other words, the word of God. Listen, please hear my heart. There's no condemnation. I say it's with the utmost compassion. But we cannot expect to be emotionally and mentally healthy if we consume two to five minutes of Bible, but 60 to 120 minutes of social media news. We are going to struggle. It's just natural. I would not expect you to be healthy emotionally unless you're incredibly naturally resilient because of the state of where we, we are. So what do we do? Here's my encouragement. And listen, I'm not going to tell you what thus says the Lord is between you and God. But whatever it is, maybe you need to ring back your news consumption. Maybe you turn off NPR and you put on some worship. Maybe you turn off whatever your Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. This is by no means a political statement. It's all of them. Like Turn it off. Listen to some sermons. Listen to the Bible on audio. Have a conversation with, a, with another friend who's fallen after Christ who can encourage you in in the word. Let, let me give you five practical ways I personally work on renewing my own mind that I think is helpful. First is reading the Bible devotionally. So many of you do this. There's devotionals you can read on, on the YouVersion Bible app, which I think is great. I think a second way, I actually think the second way helps the first one, is study the Bible. There's studying scripture and there's reading it devotionally. So studying is when you might read larger swaths. You might buy a Bible handbook. You might, might buy some resources, a commentary to help you to understand the scripture. It actually will help you in your devotional life to understand context. Two great books I recommend is Rick Warren's Bible Study Methods and then Read the Bible for a Change by Ray Lubeck. Fantastic book. So it'll give you an understanding, especially the last one, on like how the Bible was written, the types of books and the differences and how to understand the scriptures. Um, listen to sermons and podcasts. It's a great way. There's so much out there now available to us. Can I tell you a great resource if you don't know about it? I would recommend subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, subscribe to the podcast. It's the Bible Project. The Bible Project. They do overviews. The, 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 those who started it are brilliant theologians. And listen, come on. They made movies about the Bible in cartoon format for people like me. Come on, somebody. <laughs> And it gives a brilliant, theologically accurate and rich overview of Scripture. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's great. It's great for even for kids. It really is good. But it's great to give overviews and how it ties into the grand narrative of what's happening. 
um, is read Christian books. You know, uh, like Celebration of Discipline, we've recommended here before. Uh, the Life You Always Wanted by John Ortberg. There's tons of books I can recommend if you ever, uh, we're just going to create a, I'm going to create a web page with some different books on different topics if you want to dive into it. It's a great way. And then lastly, spend time with some God first friends. Like there's something about relationships, somebody else who can encourage you and remind you, help you to renew your mind. But then you renew your mind, but James says this, if you just hear the word but don't do it, it's like looking in the mirror and forgetting what you looked like. Jesus says, blessed when you put my words into practice. So to do the word. So, so, so Naomi not only heard the good news, but she went back to Bethlehem. And, and we need to act upon the good news that we hear. Reminded me, uh, you know, when I go in my car and I put on my GPS, my GPS of choice is Waze, the Waze app. Any Waze fans? Come on. Waze fans unite. Um, this isn't a commercial for Waze, but it will sound like it. Um, I love Waze. They tell you when there's traffic, if there's something on the side of the road, but here's the kicker. You ready for it? They tell you where the speed traps are, where the police are. Listen, I, listen, I always obey the law. However, I have paid Montgomery County enough money for those cameras. Come on, somebody. So when it tells me there's a red light camera ahead, I say, thank you, Jesus. I know you in this ways. I, I love you, Montgomery County, but I'm just tired of paying you money. Okay? I don't want to receive any more mail from you. With a picture of my license plate. I know what my license plate looks like. Why do I got to pay you 100 bucks for my license plate? Sorry, I shouldn't have said all that. I love you. But here's what they'll do when I'm driving. They'll say, hey, we found another route that's four minutes faster. Do you want to take it? Now, you have to click yes in order to take the route. You have to decide. It's one thing to know the word. It's another thing to do the word. It's one thing to know the truth that sets you free. It's a whole other thing to live by the truth. It's one thing to know you should forgive that person who offended you. It's a whole other thing to go through the process of offense. It's one thing to know you shouldn't complain and grumble against that person, but you should speak words of life that build up, but it's a whole other thing to do it. It's one thing to know that you should be in healthy, Christ-centered community, i.e. a local church. It's a whole other thing to get up on a Sunday morning. It's a whole other thing to sign up for a group and show up every Tuesday night at 730 it's a whole other thing to put it into practice. It's one thing to end that relationship that you know you should. Come on, somebody. It's a whole other thing to text him right now and say, it's over. I was for somebody. <laughs> First service didn't get that, so I was for somebody in here. I don't know. I don't know. But you're welcome. That was free. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Two scriptures later, Paul says, be led by the Spirit. How are we led by the Spirit? How do we cultivate a relationship with the Spirit of God? Is we actually, we actually do the word or, or practice spiritual disciplines or practices that connect us with God. I know it can sound like being led by the Spirit is something God does. Yes, he will do it. The Spirit of God will empower you. yes. But he works together with us and with our efforts. In other words, when we read our Bible, when we pray, when we gather to worship, we are opening ourselves up. We are inviting the Holy Spirit in to lead us and guide us and empower us. And, and neurologically speaking, 
that actually does something to us on a, on a, on a neuro level. In fact, John Mark Comer, uh, great author and pastor, I'd read any of his books, I'd recommend. Uh, he's got a great podcast too. Um, the things we do, he says, do something to us. They shape the people that we become. In his book, Live No Lies, he talks about this idea of something called Hebb's Law. Uh, Dr. Donald Hebb is a neuropsychologist, and he actually found and kind of made this like pithy statement that essentially neurons that fire together wire together. And meaning this, the more you do something, the more it becomes ingrained in you neurologically. Therefore, the easier it is to do something. Let me give you case in point. Think of some place you commonly drive. Maybe here at a church, maybe at your workplace, wherever it might be. Have you ever had a moment where you drove there and maybe even consciously you weren't even thinking about it, but you got there? That is your neurons at work. You've done it so much, it's instinctive. This is why sometimes there are some sin patterns in our life that are hard to break in our life. Because you've been doing something for a long time, you've created a pattern. On the flip side, if we then reverse the trend and we pray, that's why initially the spiritual disciplines, I even somebody asked me, why are they called disciplines? Because oftentimes initially they are disciplines to get up and pray and read your Bible but over the course of time, neurons that fire together, wire together. God himself knew that's the way your, your, your mind was wired. Isn't he brilliant? So he instructs us to do certain things because he knows the more you do it will shape who you become. So the more you pray, the more you read your Bible. If you're wondering, how do I have the fruit of the Spirit? How do I have the Holy Spirit working on the inside of me? How do I begin to be formed to the image of Christ? As you begin to do the things that the Bible asks us to do. We read our Bibles. We pray. We gather to worship. That's why initially it is a discipline. You gotta put it in your calendar. You gotta set a reminder. You gotta block off Sunday mornings. Say, I'm not gonna do anything else on Sunday mornings. When you join that group, you gotta block off, okay, Tuesday nights, this is what I'm gonna do. Because initially it'll be a discipline, but then once those neurons start firing, once you experience the benefit of it, you begin to want to do it. It becomes second nature. Some of you already experienced this with reading the Bible. Some of you, you don't even think about reading the Bible in the mornings, but you do it. It's just kind of, you've built that into you. And uh, so I want to encourage you, what is it for you that you need to do? You need to renew your mind with the truth of the word of God, but you need to put it into practice. What is it this year? I, I've been telling you since the beginning of the year, I, would, I want to challenge you this year, commit yourself wholeheartedly to God. Read the Bible. Pray. Gather with your church. Be in a community group. Get fully planted in a mesh in a local church here at Catalyst. Go through next steps. Like, do those things at the end of the year. The neurons are fired together, wired together, and your life will be better because of it. Why? Because this is the way that God has designed us. Isn't he amazing? Yes. Number two is this. You've got to reconnect with God first, friends. So verse 18, it says, The two women then went on until they came to Bethlehem. Naomi went back to hang out with her homegirls back in Bethlehem. She said, Moab, peace. Going to Bethlehem. And uh, she, she went back. And as I read that, I thought to myself that for some of you in this room, you have done that. Because here's the reality. The pandemic has, to a degree, to a degree for all of us, disconnected us from people. Um, whether it's physically, uh, whether relationally. Um, but, and, and here's the reality. Many of you have reconnected with others. Some of you, maybe though, you haven't taken that step. You haven't reconnected in community, and that's your next step. 
Because you were created for community. And please hear this. I mentioned this last week. 61% of Americans currently say they feel lonely. I've shared before, loneliness is detrimental to your physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And listen, please do not hear that in any way as condemnation. There's more compassion. I've been there. And God has called us, though, and designed us to be in community and relationship with one another. The Apostle Paul says this, referring to the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 5. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. If you look at the New Testament, and you look at early church history, the, the, New Testament, the New Testament progression for a follower of Jesus is to give themselves to Christ and then to a local church. That is the New Testament example. Read about it. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians, the church at, Cor- at Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the church at Colossae, Colossians, because this was the, listen, Jesus didn't call you to follow him as his disciple. He called you to follow him along with other disciples. That's why he had 12 disciples, not just one. We'd be careful in our Western context to read the scriptures through an individualistic, independent lens. Our faith is incredibly communal. And listen, if you haven't enmeshed yourself, embedded yourself, planted yourself, connected yourself into a local church community, you are missing the very best that are really our faith has to offer. You know, you ever been to a party before? I know recently I had this experience. And you go to a party, had a great time, and then you get in the car with your friends or your spouse or your roommate or, or you talk to someone afterwards, and they say, man, did you have the cheesecake? And you're like, there was cheesecake? <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're angry, right? I missed the cheesecake? Why didn't you tell him what kind of friend are you? (laughs) Come on, cheesecake is the will of God. It's so good. Um, But listen, listen. In the same way you you, you missed out on the best part of the party. Come on. Can I tell you this? Listen, please hear it. If If you follow Christ and you even attend church, but you haven't gotten embedded into community, you're missing out on the cheesecake of your faith. I'm telling you, it's so much better. I think people come to Catalyst, I mean, listen, listen, our services, they're pretty, they're okay, they're good. But listen, the beauty, the richness, the depth, the blessing, oh, it's in community. It's when you get to know people. It's when you can open up and connect. And my hope today is some of you who never, never taken that step, I've been in your seat. You take that step and you get Connected. In fact, it was intriguing. Harvard Health actually found this. When you are closely connected, like intimate relationships, do you know that intimate, close relationships actually release a stress-reducing hormone in your body? Like, this is the way God designed us. This is why our faith is communal. God knows I created you for this, and it reduces stress in you when you're around each other, when you're with each other, and you're in genuine, authentic community. I love what Helen Keller says. She says, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. So beautiful. Verse 18, a little bit later on, though, I love this. Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, so she stopped urging her. Come on, any, any introverts in the house today? Come on, I actually am one. I'm an introvert. Any introverts? Come raise, half of you are not raising your hand because you're introverted. You're like, I can't raise my hand. I know. Or the extroverts, come on. Like, woo! 
stand up. I didn't ask you to stand up. I said, put your hand up. I am married to a very strong extrovert. And um, come on, Naomi was the introvert. She's like, come on, Ruth. Why don't you go? Like, go. I'm good now. I need me time. Ruth's like, Ruth's that strong extrovert. I ain't going nowhere. I don't know what me time is. All I know what we time is. Can I have a word for you? Because I'm like you who push people away. You need to let them in. You got to let them in. You got to let people in. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel messy because it's uncomfortable for you in the way maybe you're wired. But I'm telling you, it's one of the very best things you could ever do in your life is to let people in, to let people see the real you. And a lot of times, here's the reason we don't. It's because we've been hurt. And I'm sensitive to that. In my early 20s, I had two relationships in my life where there was great offense. And what Jeremy did was Jeremy became hard. See, if you, whatever you do not allow God to heal becomes hard. And I was hard towards people. I was hard towards God. And it wasn't until I allowed God to heal me. And listen, I know this is going to be hard for you if you're there. But biblically... I know people, it's people who hurt us, but biblically speaking, do you want to know how God heals us? Through people. <laughs> if you'd like to be alone, I know, I know. You'd rather be like, just me and you, Jesus. I don't need them. Right? Have you heard anybody else say, it's just me and Jesus? Well, that's not what Jesus wants for you. So if it's you and Jesus, he keeps telling you, go find friends. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> But go find friends. <laughs> it's the way I designed you. And, but it's through people. Here's what James 5.16 says. People are on Catalyst know this. He says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so you may be healed. Your soul needs healing. Maybe it's somebody hurts you. Maybe it's the sin in your life that's brought wounding to your soul. And we were healed Here's what we say, Catalyst, is you need somewhere and someone to take the mask off with. Not the physical mask necessarily, but the emotional and spiritual mask you wear. Let me give you an illustration for this. There's a lot of us who walk around with the mask on. And yes, this is Mario, in honor of my son. He loves Mario. But we walk around like this. Can you all hear me okay? Um, and we walk around with a smile on our face. And we say, hey, how are you doing? Man, I'm great. I'm great. How are the kids? Thriving. How's work? Unbelievable. How's your marriage? Never been better. It's great. It's great. All right. Have a great day. It's great. The reality is, let me say this. Um, there are some people in your life you need to wear a mask with because they may not be safe. That's reality. However, you need someone to take the mask off with. So when they ask you how you're doing, say, I'm anxious. Or, hey, I, I really messed up. That thing I've been trying to get free of, I did it again. Hey, how are the kids? It's been overwhelming. They're struggling at school. How's work? It's been very stressful, very pressure-filled. In fact, I've lost some sleep because of a project at work. You need someone who can get that side of you. 
I'm telling you, listen, if you don't have that, hear my heart. You may feel good, but underneath the surface, unhealth is brewing. Spiritual unhealth, emotional unhealth. I have been where you are, and it's not healthy. It's like somebody who on the inside, they have a clogged artery, but they think they're okay. But there's unhealth on the inside. There's unhealth emotionally and spiritually. If you have no one, here's what I say. You need someone and somewhere to take the mask off. Or I say this way. You need someone or a few people in your life, when they ask you how you're doing, you can't get by with, I'm great. Because they really know what you're struggling with. They really know how you struggle with anxiety. They really know that habitual sin you keep falling into. They really know the state of your marriage. You need that person. That's why we have community groups. That's the number one reason. Yes, you're going to do a great book study or Bible study or try new restaurants or do new hikes, but you need someone. Our hope is you find someone or somebodies that you can take the mask off with. And here's what probably you'll hear on the other side of it. Here's the power part. Ready? Is more often than not, when you share something, you'll hear, me too. Remember, years ago, one of my first community groups I was ever part of was a marriage one. Christina and I just got married. And uh, I learned early in our marriage that I was a little bit of a control freak in the kitchen. Um, pray for your boy. So, and Christina had this gift where she would leave kitchen cabinets open. <laughs> and it was driving me up a wall. I thought, man, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. These kitchen cabinets will be the death of me. Uh, we now have actually, true story, self-closing kitchen cabinets. You know the ones we kind of touch a little bit and they kind of shut, you know? Not motorized, but they kind of have a little weight to it, you know? Because of Christina. No, I'm just kidding. Partially. Um, so I, we're in this group. And literally this other woman says, in the group, man, my husband leaves the kitchen cabinets open. And it drives me crazy. I think I yelled out, me too. I think I like stood up real awkwardly. I was like, thank God, I'm not the only one. We'll pray for our spouses. You know. But it was like so therapeutic. It was ministry to know I am not alone. There's somebody else who understands. And that's what you'll hear. When you say I struggle with anxiety, you'll probably hear me too. When I, I sometimes, you know, when I'm stressed, I overeat or I drink too much. You'll probably hear me too. That, that our marriage is not really good. We're not great at conflict. You'll probably hear me too. I, I go to websites I wish I didn't go to. You'll probably hear me too. Are you following me, church? I'm telling you, listen, it is powerful for your soul. That's why James says when you confess your sin, you're open, you're vulnerable, you take the mask off. You experience healing. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Here's the last and final point. And that's we got to re-engage with God's purpose. So Ruth, in Ruth 3, uh, we see a shift in Naomi. It says here in verse 1 that one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided. Naomi kind of takes the, 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 her eyes off herself and puts it on to Ruth. She says, now we got to help you to find, get you a husband. <laughs> Boaz, who she eventually marries, uh, she begins to help Ruth uh, cultivate that relationship with, with Boaz. 
But here's what Naomi experiences, and here's what research even shows, that actually when you get your eyes off yourself, when you actually think less of yourself and more of others, when you're actually more considerate of other people, when you're more selfless than self-centered, you actually become more fulfilled and happy. The research actually shows it. Uh, there was a, uh, at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Dr. Carolyn Schwartz, they did 2,000 people, and they found a correlation between serving other people or being more considerate of others in happiness. They actually suggest, she suggested, there may be a biochemical explanation for positive emotions associated with doing good. This is in part what Jesus says, spoke about when he says, whoever finds their life, Matthew 10, 39, will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And you may be experienced this on a small scale, at least, or maybe on a great scale. I know recently I experienced this on a very small scale. I was at the grocery store, and I was walking back to my car with my groceries, and I saw a grocery cart in the middle of the parking lot. And I thought to myself, I'm going to put that away. I know it's not my cart, but I'm going to put it away. And I thought to myself, I just served humanity today. Come on. I just helped the world. You're welcome, world. You know, um, but have you had that happen before where you, you, you did that or you, you let somebody butt in line at the grocery store? You had 20 items, they had two. You're like, go right ahead. And you're like, I'm a good person, <laughs> right? Or come on, you're on the beltway and someone wants to get in and you're like, come on in. I'm a Christian. <laughs> I love people. <laughs> but you feel better, right? Think about the opposite, right? When you don't let somebody in on the beltway and you look straight ahead. You, like even though they're looking at you, you're like, I'm not gonna look at them. I was here first, right? And you know, you don't feel great inside, right? Or true story, I'm gonna publicly confess a sin right now, so forgive me. This is a judgment-free zone, Planet Fitness for your spiritual life. Um, I, uh, one time I like, I've done this a couple times, okay? Be real honest. I didn't put my cart back at the grocery store, and I left it out. And you ever did that before? Anybody else want to be just real today? Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, right. Like, most of you are perfect, okay? No. I always put it back. But you know how many know? When you leave your cart out and don't put it back, you drive out of that parking lot going 47 miles an hour. Come on. You're like, I need to get here as fast as possible. I hope no one saw me. Like, come on. You know you did something wrong if you got to get out of the place real quick. Come on. But we're wired. Have you experienced this? We are wired to be selfless. We are wired to be more considerate of other people. That's why you feel better when you do it. They've actually shown when you are generous, when you are outward focused, it releases dopamine, the pleasure chemical in your brain. The same chemical released in sex, the same chemical released with some drugs is released when you help others. How brilliant is our God? Jesus says the greatest is the servant of all. He wasn't just giving a motivational speech. He was saying, this is the way you were created to be more considerate. What's it mean practically? Be more considerate of your spouse. Be more considerate of your coworker. And when you go to work, don't just look for what I can get from this place. Look for what can I give. When you come to church, not, not what can I just receive, but man, how can I be a blessing to somebody else? You join your group, not just what can I get from this group, but what can I help others in this group? And, and Naomi, what she does, and here's just another practical, she actually employs her gifts and her past experiences to help Ruth. 
She, she, see, see, Naomi was related to Boaz. She knew Boaz. Naomi had also been married to Elimelech. She begins to help Ruth in her relationship. She gives her coaching on how to prepare, how to cultivate a relationship with Boaz. And here's the reality. This is for everybody in this room and watching online. You have experiences and gifts. Each one of you have a gift and gifts from God that can actually bless other people. In fact, that's part of our next steps process. You take a spiritual gifts assessment. But you all have experiences that you can help. You know what I've often found? Sometimes the most powerful experiences from your past are oftentimes the ones that were painful. Because God can take your misery and turn it into ministry. I remember years ago, a couple who'd walked through a great breach of trust early in their marriage. And what they did was because they walked through that, God healed their marriage, he restored their marriage. They actually ended up coaching and mentoring other married couples. Why? They used what was misery. Listen, what the enemy meant for evil, God will turn for good. And some of you have experiences that you can be a blessing to other people. You've walked through some things. You, so I would even encourage you to think through, what are some past experiences that I could leverage to bless others, to serve others? What gifts have God given me to serve other people? Now, as I close, I want to go back to Adam Grant, who kind of popularized this term flourishing with his article last year. He said at the end of his article, the antidote to flourishing. And I love this because it's actually so biblical. He says that... Uh, a concept called flow may be the antidote to languishing. Flow is an elusive state of absorption in a meaningful challenge or a momentary bond with other people, having a bond, a relationship, where your sense of time or place and self melts away. So catch this. In other words, when you begin to live according to God's purpose for your life, When you begin to have a meaningful work to do, a meaningful service to others, you're in flow. It's the antidote to languishing. When you have a meaningful bond, when you let other people in, when you're connected deeply in the community, that's the antidote to languishing. And that is how he says you move from languishing to flourishing. So biblical. Very end of Ruth chapter 4. Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a child named Obed. And at the very end, my last scripture, these women are talking to Naomi and they say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi went from languishing Bitter, empty, God's hands against me, to flourishing. Why? Because she let Ruth in. Why? Because she decided, I'm going to do what's right, even though it's going to take courage, even though it's going to be risky, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And then I'm going to see, I'm going to take my eyes off myself, and I'm going to help Ruth. I'm going to serve Ruth. And we see she moves to flourishing. So I want to encourage you. How do we move from languishing to flourishing? We renew our mind with the truth and we put it into practice. We reconnect with God first friends. We get reconnected in relationships. Again, very practically, join a group. 
If you're already deep in community, help other people this semester in your group get further connected and build relationships. And then lastly is re-engage with God's purpose. I mean, discover your gifts. Re-engage your gifts, your past experiences. Serve other people.